The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, also known as CMS, developed the ESRD Quality Incentive Program, or QIP, to be the nation's first pay-for-performance quality incentive program. In this episode of the ASN Kidney News Podcast, Emily Robinson, MD, and Daniel Weiner, MD, discuss QIP, its goals, requirements, and challenges in implementation. Both are members of the ASN QIP work group, which developed ASN's recommendations to CMS regarding the QIP. In a nutshell, what is the Quality Incentive Program or the QIP? The Quality Incentive Program or QIP is the nation's first pay-for-performance or value-based purchasing quality incentive program. It's a program where CMS lays out some quality measures that the dialysis units are expected to follow. And at the end of the performance period, points are tallied for whether or not those measures were achieved. Now, if dialysis facility does not receive enough points, they will actually get a payment reduction. It's actually more of a quality disincentive program where there's a penalty, but there's no real bonus if you do meet or exceed certain quality metrics. And why was the program developed in this way? Why is it a, a sort of disincentive program? The QIP and the, and the expanded bundle, and this is a new way of dialysis financing in which many more facets of dialysis care are included in a single bundle payment are really very tightly intertwined. And part of it is if you have a bundled payment where you're putting more things in there, the natural inclination is to actually reduce the quantity of care that you're giving. So anytime you set up a, a bundled payment system like that, you want to put in certain barriers to prevent people going below a certain level of basic good care, which is considered quality. And that's where, in part, the, the QIP comes into play. So, for example, because the bundle in many respects was driven by the very high costs of erythropoiesis-stimulating agents, and these are used to treat anemia, initial QIP had a lower level of hemoglobin below which you'd get penalized, and that was to make sure that people kept using erythropoiesis-stimulating agents like epoetin in order to achieve a certain baseline hemoglobin. So they're really um, very closely intertwined. There, there clearly is a goal in the recognition that dialysis care can be better in the United States and that our patients don't do as well as potentially they could. And I think there certainly is an overall quality goal here as well. But I think the primary goal was largely financial. I do wonder if they didn't really see any reason to put in a bonus because they felt like with almost threatening with payment reductions if people didn't meet these goals that it was almost easier and would save them more money to be able to just make reductions and not really have to add any money at any point since most people would try or most dialysis units would try to reach the criteria for achieving their full points just to avoid payment reductions. So from your perspective, is the main goal of the QIP to save money or is it to improve quality of care? I think the goal of the bundle, which you can't really disentangle from the QIP, is to save money. And, I mean, that's really obvious within the bundle where there's a, a net, even before you get started, a 2% reduction in, in total outlay by CMS in paying for the bundle. And then the QIP really accompanies the bundle. So the goal of this 
really substantial health care reform is largely to save money. I think the QIP has, has a secondary goal of ensuring that what is deemed a certain level of quality and a certain minimum standard of care is still achieved despite a financial disincentive to do so under the bundle. You had the opportunity to be the administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and you had that savings. How would each of you use it? Um, Dr. Robinson, why don't we start with you? One of the things that's missing in a lot of the quality initiatives that either were proposed or that, that they've considered proposing is that there's not a lot of evidence behind it, and there's always a lack of evidence in a lot of nephrology studies and using some of that money to try to perform more quality of care studies and find more outcomes in order to have better evidence, I think would be a good use of some of the money. I would put money that's obtained from the QIP savings right back into the system to try to figure out what quality is for dialysis patients because we really are lacking that. We don't know what interventions we have and what things that we can do to make these patients' lives both better and longer. And there's a lot of studies that will never be funded either by pharmaceuticals because there's no money in them or by the NIH because they're very expensive to do. But this resource, you could use it very very wisely, I think, to make a far better QIP, almost make it a, a circular process where the QIP subsequently can make the QIP better. There's not a lot of evidence underpinning the quality measures. How is CMS making the data from the QIP available for research and for sort of informing the next generation of measures? In terms of how CMS is making the data available, there's actually a mandate that dialysis units performance on QIP metrics posted prominently right outside their um, facilities. In terms of what's being done with the data as to how to improve care moving forward, that's a much harder question to answer. And I think that may go somewhat toward the fact that the QIP measures have been fairly varying over the first three years of QIP calendar years. If you look at your your anemia measure itself, it has changed dramatically, um, for example. Dr. Robinson, looking at 2013 and 2014, what measures is CMS planning to add in those years? The big change is really for 2014 where they kept both of those measures from 2013, the hemoglobin greater than 12 and the uh, urea reduction ratio greater than 65%. However, they also added a vascular access measure with two subcategories where one is for the percent of patients using an AV fistula for the last treatment of the month, and the other is the percent using a catheter for the last treatment of the month and 89 days prior. And obviously, the goal is to have a higher rate using a fistula and a lower rate using a catheter. The other thing that they added for 2014 was that they added three reporting measures on top of these three clinical measures. These three reporting measures consist of a monthly mineral metabolism monitoring where dialysis units have to report that they've monitored patients' serum, calcium, and phosphorus over the past month. Patient experience of care survey has to be administered to the patients, specifically the in-center hemodialysis consumer assessment of healthcare providers and systems survey, the ICH-CAPS. 
And the other reporting measure is that there's an expectation for submission of infections to the Center for Disease Control uh, National Healthcare Safety Data Safety Network System. So, Dr. Weiner, what did CMS propose but, but not include and why? There were a few changes from the proposed rule. The least significant is that rather than calculating adequacy using something called KT over V, which is a little bit of a more complicated mathematical measure, they stayed with the urea reduction ratio. And this is probably just a very minor change that's not really felt to be all that important. The two more significant exclusions was there was initially proposed an access-related infection measure and a standardized hospitalization ratio measure. Um, and both of these were postponed. The access-related infection measures is very interesting. This is actually one which is probably a fairly important one for dialysis units because it's largely controlled by dialysis units. It's something that's important, and it's something that can be influenced and have a, a real benefit on patient quality of life. I think the major issue with this one was that there just wasn't enough data existing to figure out what a good score is even and what a bad score is, just because there just hasn't been detailed enough data collection in dialysis patients with reliable enough information coming from the dialysis units on the subject. So I would expect that this measure is going to return at some point in the next several years um, once there's more information. And I think that's one major reason why the CDC's infection measure where we have to report infections to the CDC was included in the most recent QIP for 2014. The second measure that was excluded was the standardized hospitalization rate. And that was postponed because it's actually it's a very, very difficult measure. And I think there were a lot of concerns raised during the public commentary period about this measure. The most notable concern in my mind is that there's no real good way to standardize this. You have patient data, which you were taking to figure out how sick a patient is from the time that they started dialysis on the 27-28 form that all dialysis patients have filled out. We could be looking at hospitalizations that are occurring immediately after that form's filled out or a decade after that form's filled out. And so many things can happen during that time that there's no real good way to figure out what these hospitalization rates truly mean. So until the more data is available and there's more granular information about patients that allows us to truly understand who these patients are better, I don't think that that measure is really going to come into play. From your perspective, Dr. Weiner, when do you think the measure will come into play? I mean, when do you think we will be able to have the adequate data to, to make some of these decisions? That's a very difficult question. One of the ways that CMS is planning on gathering some of this data is through the Crown Web system. This is an online data capturing system to which dialysis facilities would submit their data on individual patients. The largest dialysis providers, Fresenius and DeVita, the very large dialysis organizations, and DCI, which is another medium-sized dialysis organization, all would have had the ability to electronically submit in batched format data to Crown Web, whereas the smaller dialysis organizations were struggling with how to get their data on board. In reading the most recent QIP final rule, Crown Web is actually supposed to have been operational last month and still is not available. 
likely because there there remain issues as to how to equitably assign data capturing. And until we have the ability to get this data, until we have this ability to get this data without excessive burden from all sizes and types of dialysis providers, I think it'll be very difficult to be able to determine and rank based on a standardization a standardized hospitalization rate. Given the requirements of the bundle and of the QIP, these are large administrative responsibilities for institutions. How has your institution been responding and what types of, of decision-making and logistical support are you putting in place for the dialysis community around you? So the unit is a DCI unit, and we're lucky enough to have a big enough infrastructure that there there are people who are able to look at the various QIP measures and come up with wider strategies as to how to best deal with these and how to best assimilate these data. I think that the real fine line is in trying to figure out how much do we try to be certain we meet these QIP metrics versus how much latitude is given for individualizing patient care where these QIP metrics may not be able to be met. And it's really one of the major concerns that's raised by any system where you have absolute metrics. So, for example, if you have a patient who is at the end of their life and dialyzing with a catheter. They're basically in a palliative mode, for example, and the best URR they're going to get is 63%. Do you tell that patient, no, you have to stay an extra half an hour, or no, we have to put a fistula in, even though that may be the wrong thing to do in order to meet your QIP requirements, or do you individualize your care more? And I think this is a battle that's going to be faced by dialysis facilities and physician providers and nurse providers moving forward. How do you think the bundle and the QIP will change how we train the next generation nephrologists and other health professionals who care for patients with kidney disease? It really decreases some of the individualization, although we don't want to lose that, obviously, but I think there's a lot more thoughts into what things cost, and we're already starting to see it with the bundle in terms of the changeover of everybody from IV EPO to sub-Q EPO, and there probably will be a lot more changes to oral vitamin D analogs and things like that. It's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing per se, but I do think there's going to be a lot more of a focus on what things might cost. I think specifically in terms of education and training the next generation, I think you're going to see a lot less attention to specific details, understanding anemia and understanding the interplay between iron and erythropoietin or various different vitamin D analogs because all of this stuff is going to end up being protocolized. And it'll have to be because you can control your finances in part with protocols and minimize the number of people who are going to fall below a certain threshold that's going to result in a financial penalty. I think there's benefits also. I think the one benefit that we're really starting to see coming out is that there seems to be a lot more education of patients as they're coming into kidney failure and needing kidney replacement therapy regarding different modalities, regarding how important fistulas are versus catheters and grafts, 
and balancing patient choice with what we do see as being advantages. And I think that fellows and trainees and nephrologists are, are learning more about the different modalities that are available for patients and ones that may be better suited for individual lifestyles. Help me reconcile minimum standards and protocols with individualized care and patient choice. What can CMS do to, to try to meet those potentially conflicting goals? Part of why in 2014, um, when they talk about the payment schedule, there's 100 points total and a facility only has to achieve 53 of those points in order to get full payment. And I like to think that part of that is an attempt at some individualization. With the measures right now, most people are going to reach the URR measure. Most people are going to reach the hemoglobin measure. But I think vascular access, which is the other big clinical measure that's comprising 30% of the score, is a big one and probably the one that most people are concerned about individualization. And I think that both Dan and I have already mentioned cases where we have concerns about that. But I do think that having a little bit of a buffer zone in the scoring is partially an attempt at allowing some individualization. And if there's a unit where, for whatever reason, they have a higher percentage of patients that need grafts or that need to have catheters for one reason or another, that there's a little bit of a buffer zone. So I think that's one way they've approached it. And I hope that they keep that score. I have some fear that the score is going to increase quite a bit every year and that it might not be there, but that's one way it would keep it down. When we're talking about hemodialysis, we have three different types of access for a reason. We have fistulas, catheters, and grafts. And for certain patients, each access may be the best type of access. I think it's very fair to say that for most patients, fistulas are the optimal access. But there are patients for whom a catheter will serve them best. And there needs to be room in a system for a practitioner not to get pressured to do the wrong thing. Similarly, there are many patients for whom a graft will serve best, particularly with a dialysis population that's getting older and older. And there needs to be room in a system that you're able to individualize your decision-making so that you're not feeling compelled to do what may not be the best thing for the patient. And that's really an imperative here that the Quality Incentive Program really recognizes that individualized care maybe the highest quality care. One of the issues in terms of what's best for the patients, obviously discovery, the research continuum, trying to find innovation, promoting innovation in healthcare, particularly in the dialysis arena. How will the bundle and QIP affect investigation and investments in discovery related to dialysis care in particular and in kidney care in general? Could impact it quite a bit. I think that's one of the big concerns in terms of the bundle because with all of the medications being lumped into the bundle and therefore pharmaceutical companies are not being able to charge as much for the medications to the dialysis facilities if it's all lumped together, it's definitely going to decrease innovation. And I think that was one of the big concerns when the bundle came out. There was certainly going to be a decrease in pharmaceutical companies wanting to invest in innovation and dialysis care. It definitely is something that bears watching. I think that there is money in there. If you think in the mid-2000s, the amount of epotent that was being used was over $2 billion. 
and and that money has been rolled forward and put into that single bundled system. In 2010 and 2011, the amount of ePotent that was used has dropped and seems to be dropping fairly dramatically. If you look at dialysis provider data and data from the DOPS practice monitor, so there is money available. It's just there's not necessarily blockbuster money available. And, and that may be important for drug development. I do think that there's a nice opening, though, for low-cost, potentially moderately impactful interventions. For example, there's room within the bundle for dialysis providers to reallocate money, potentially, let's say, from paracalcitol to calcitriol, and use that savings to give nutritional supplements. And maybe a trade-off like that could be an overall greater benefit um, to patients. So there's there's room for creativity, just not a ton of room for it. Each of you have have mentioned that the bundle and the QIP, the sort of outcome of the Medicare Improvements for Patients and Providers Act, are to some extent at the forefront of a lot of what's going to happen with the Affordable Care Act and with health reform. So as you think about the implementation of both the bundle and the QIP, and there's sort of three recommendations that you would make to CMS, as, as broad or as narrow as you'd like. What would those three recommendations be? Um, the three things that I can think of is that you need to leave enough room um, in any sort of quality metric-based system that you can individualize care. I think the second thing is you need to make sure that you still allow for innovation, be it through development of new therapies or application of old therapies and exploration of whether they're effective, both medically and in terms of cost effectiveness. And I think the third thing, and the thing that is probably most troubling, at least to me, about the bundle and the QIP is that we just don't have systems in place to truly know the effects of what's fairly massive changes in how we're administering healthcare. We need to make sure when other systems go through this that they have data before implementation, data after implementation, and ways to compare how patients truly do under these different payment systems. And if a measure or a metric really doesn't truly have an impact on patient life expectancy or patient quality of life, then we need to recognize it and eliminate it and find better measures. And Cherry picking is a huge, huge issue that's not talked about enough. We've had new patients coming in, and to be perfectly honest, I'll look at them, and in the back of my mind, I'll be thinking, this person has this really bad disease that's not a case mix adjuster under the current bundle, and this person is going to really hurt us under the new bundle and the new QIP. I'm proud to say we haven't refused anyone or tried not to do anything about these patients yet, but it's something that, that's present, and it's something that every unit is going to be faced with, especially if they're confronted with being fiscally viable or not. Dr. Robinson, Dr. Weiner, thank you for joining us for today's discussion. Thank you for having us. Sure. Thank you very much. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology. All rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. The information in this podcast should not be used during a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. 
Please consult your doctor or other qualified health care provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.